Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Luke 12, 49 through 53. I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Elizabeth. Good morning again, and welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. We've been doing a series now for multiple weeks, looking at questions that Jesus asked. And the reason, our goal for doing this is we're trying to develop a spirit of curiosity in ourselves. I don't know if you know this, but the, the word curiosity, the Latin root for that is the word, the same root for cure. And I don't know why they, they did that. Maybe when they were coming up with that word, there was some desire or hope that by being curious, it might fix some of what ails us by having a, a curious temperament, by being inquisitive, by being people who are non-defensive with engagement. See, I would argue the reason why we're trying to grow and develop this skill is that it's something that if you don't exercise it, it doesn't happen. And I think in culture, we're seeing less and less curiosity, not just inside the church, but even outside the church. And so I would argue whether you're a Christian here this morning or you're not, or you don't know what you believe, or you're somewhere in the middle, I think we can all agree that having an ironic spirit that is wanting to engage, that actually be curious of why do you do that? Why, why do you come from that position? What, what makes you work? What makes you think that way or act that way would be healthy for all of us, for culture as well. I, I, I looked this up this week, that the opposite of curiosity is apathy, actually. The opposite of curiosity is, is indifference, it's ignorance, it's disinterestedness, boredom, stagnation. And I don't want us to be people like this. I, hopefully you don't want that as for yourself as well. So I think we should try to increase our curiosity. Now, small problem, today's text is a difficult passage for our modern sensibilities. Today's text is hard for our values that we hold, culturally speaking. And so we're going to have to look at this in phases. We're going to look at phase one. Jesus doesn't fit in our box. Phase two, then therefore there's a costliness to this. And then phase three, we have to ask the question, which is, is it worth the cost? So Jesus doesn't fit in our boxes. The costliness of Christianity of this. And then lastly, is it worth the cost? So first, Jesus doesn't fit in our boxes. Uh, I uh, recently took my kids to an amusement park, and um, we were on a roller coaster. I don't know if you've ever been in a roller coaster where it stops suddenly, or maybe 
you've been in cars before where there's, a, there's that sudden stop and, um, you know, you get that whiplash. And I'm trying, I've been trying to think back to my 10th grade physics class, that, and I'm, I'm going to butcher it if you're a real physicist here. <laughs> Tell me later. But I think what's happening in that moment, it's not one force. I, hear, I think it's like multiple forces are working on you at, at that time. And there's the force of your inertia, right? There's, there's also the force of the car. There's, the, there's other forces going on. And I think for us today, there are multiple forces that are uh, upon us. For instance, your culture is not neutral. There, we have cultural values, some of which are about of inclusiveness, of, of unity, of, of um, at least on the surface, we say we want peace. We want to come together. Uh, that's one force. Another force is this, that there's a, a view in our culture about Jesus that is the, I don't know how you say it, it's the lovey-dovey Jesus. It's the Jesus of the, of the lambs, and the shep- he's a shepherd, and he's cuddly with all these, you know, fuzzy wuzzies around them, and he's the lovey-dovey Jesus, the open arms Jesus. I, when I was growing up, I don't see it as much, but I, I sometimes would go in people's homes, and there'd be that picture of Jesus, but it's always, Jesus is white, by the way, and that, that's ironic. Um, blue eyes, long, long hair, arms open like this, lovey-dovey Jesus. And this is a one-dimensional Jesus, and I think there's, mul- so the multiple forces of both our culture and what we like to, of our own cultural values that are developed out of a certain place and time, as well as our vision of Jesus, together those multiple forces are leaving us woefully unprepared to handle passages like this today. We don't know how to deal with them. I mean, look, look, look at verse 51. This is what gives us whiplash. He says here in verse 51, Do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? Now, some of you are thinking of that Christmas song, right? Where, you know, peace on earth, goodwill to all men. Didn't Jesus, doesn't Jesus preach peace? Doesn't he say, I've come to bring reconciliation and, and I've come to bring love and, and forgiveness and stuff? Doesn't he say that? Right? And, and yet, he, here he is saying, I'm, I've come to bring fire. I've come to bring division. And he says, I wish, I wish that fire was already here. What is going on? I think what's going on here is we're unprepared for this passage because of the, fo- of the forces that are upon us. Now, what you, the really good rides at, at, at amusement parks or the good cars have these things called seat belts. And they're not just seat belts. There's the, not just the, the um, ones that go on your lap, but you have the ones that go across your chest, right? There's two aspects of a seat belt. There's a high component and a low component. And you need both to kind of keep you. It doesn't stop the crash, by the way. It doesn't stop the clash. It doesn't stop the, the tension of the moment, but it counteracts it. And I think we need the same here as well. You need a high belt that helps you from falling out when you hear passages like this. And that high belt is the idea that Jesus doesn't fit in our box. That Jesus, it, it, the Bible is very clear that, that Jesus fu- is, claims to be fully God and fully man. He says, I, I, love, I love justice, but I love forgiveness. And justice is making you accountable for what you've done, and forgiveness is letting you off. He holds those together. He also, uh, he's, he, he, he's, Jesus is strong, but he's weak. He's oh, turning over tables, and he's accepting sinners at his, at his table. Jesus is able to be meek in service, but also with authority. And so I believe that he keeps together categories that for us do not make sense. They don't fit. Um, there's a, in, in Groundhog's Day with Bill Murray, there's this you know, place where he goes, I'm, we're not going to play by their rules anymore. Jesus is saying that to us. 
Mr. Beaver in the Chronicle of, of Narnia trying to explain Aslan the lion, who's this Jesus figure. Susan is, is, says this about meeting Aslan for the first time. She says, is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus is not tame. He's not predictable. He's not safe, but we're told through the accounts of the Bible that he's good. And the question for us then is right now, are we able to approach him that way? Can we? Even when things don't make sense, even when we're, we look at the, the hardness of life, when we, we look at the death that's around us, we look at the, the things that we're going through, that we don't know what's really happening, can we still approach him? See, that would be, I'd call that the high belt, uh, to not put a limit on Jesus, to make him one-dimensional. One of the reasons why Protestants said we shouldn't make pictures of Jesus is because the minute you do, you've limited him to one aspect. And you can't, you, you shouldn't. So that's a high belt. Now, I also think you need a low belt. The high belt helps you, protects you from a, a limited view of Jesus. But the low belt actually protects you from our cultural impulses and values. Why? Because if Jesus is real, then we should expect him to actually confront every particular culture. Right? This is my favorite example of this, I've been using it for a long time, is that if you go to the Middle East today, the cultural values there, and you go to them with some of the passages from the Bible that say, turn the other cheek, or love your enemy. The, the cultural values of that current space today, when they look at you, they'll look at you like you're crazy. Like, what are you talking about? Love your enemy? No, you're supposed to always hate your enemy. Or if you, if you don't love your enemy, you're, you're, they're going to abuse you. Of course you're supposed to hate your enemy. You come here today, and at least on the surface in America, and you tell people, love your enemies, people go, well, yeah. Turn the other cheek? Well, yeah, of course we're supposed to do that, at least on the surface. Now, you go over there and say, you know what, marriage is between a man and a woman. Or you say marriage, how about this? The sexual ethic, you tell them over there, it should be all, you should only have sex inside of marriage. You come over here, and over there they'll say, well, of course, we all know that. But you come over here, people will say, you're crazy, what are you talking about? See, what's happening there is that if Jesus Christ is true, and the biblical account of him is true, and it holds these things together, then every culture at every time and every place is going to have some conflict with it. This is why I find it fascinating when people say, well, I can't accept this aspect. I like this part of, G of Christianity and Jesus, but I don't like this part. We should, if he is real, we should expect there's going to be something about him and about how he has made this world that will conflict with our view. In fact, I would actually argue this is a powerful apologetic for why this might actually be true. Because if there was a culture and a time and place that actually fully accepted who Jesus was, then we could assume that maybe that culture invented or could invent these stories. But go back to 2,000 years ago, and the Jews could not believe in a resurrection. The Greeks could not believe that God could be man. And we New Yorkers today don't know how to hold inclusion and the vision together. Jesus was inclusive. He brought together people who wouldn't normally come together, but also from our text, division as well. And if he doesn't fit in our box, I would argue that might be a sign that this might really be true then. But before we move on, this is what I want us to do. We have a tendency, if, if something doesn't fit our apparatus, we just ignore that part. Well, let's hold the part that we like. But, uh, the part we don't like, uh, I would argue that what, if you want to have integrity, if you want to really grow, 
instead of ignoring the parts that you want to ignore, you should go further into them and say, why is it? Be curious into those spaces and say, what might he be trying to tell me right now that either my culture is trying to ignore or my personality is trying to ignore or maybe my heart's trying to ignore right now? What are the things that we don't want to see that I should see? What are the things I'm trying to hide from? What are the things I might be missing right now? That's how you allow Jesus who doesn't fit in our box to come into our lives at some level. Okay, number one, doesn't fit our box. Okay, number two, if he doesn't fit our box, there's going to be a costliness to this. And Jesus gives us two images of that costliness, fire and baptism. Let's let's go through both of them quickly. Fire, look at verse uh, 49. He says, I've come to bring fire and how I wish it was already kindled. Fire, for pre-modern people, like we have all the scientific stuff today, but if you're a pre-modern person, this is what they knew. Whatever you put in a fire doesn't come out the same way that it goes in. But there's a division that's happening in fire. At the very least, it, it burns up and it's over. But then if you put in a metal or gold or something like that, it can be refined, but it still is, has changed by going through the fire. There's a division that ends up happening. And you say, well, why is Jesus bringing fire? He's bringing fire for this reason. He's not willing for you to stay on the sidelines about him. That Jesus is trying, what he's trying to say in this passage is, if he's real, this is, if he is who he claims to be, he has to actually change your life. And if he's not who he says he is, well, then you have to shun him and say, and out with him. It's an either or. I know there's a, there's a view out there that says, well, Jesus was just a nice teacher, and it was, if you take the Bible, there's a lot of folks who have added to it. But I can show you the paces and the places where Jesus is claiming deity. He's claiming the, the we're going to talk about it next week. And that doesn't allow you, if Jesus is claiming deity, he's either crazy, right? There's that, he's Lord, lunatic, or liar. He's one of those things. There's only a couple options that it could be. He's not letting you stay on the sidelines. You have to either crown him or kill him. You have to either uh, make him the center of your life or push him further away from your life. And I would argue if he's at the center of your life, to some degree, your unbelieving friends have are not going to understand you. You can't. And vice versa, by the way. This is, uh, to be fully equal, if, you're, if you do not believe in who Jesus is, then people who do are not going to fully understand you either. And I, by the way, this is the, the logic and the reason why inside Christianity, Christians say you should only marry other Christians. And I bring this up because um, a lot of times people think, well, this is not, maybe this is like a cultic thing or maybe some sort of weird arbitrary rule. But I would argue it's, it's, it's a logical flow of the nature of who Jesus is. That Think about it this way. If Jesus is the reason why you get out of bed, if he is your joy, if he moves your imagination, if you place your story inside his story, then you're going on a journey, and the persons that you come in close contact with are part of that journey. And they're not going to be able to understand the places that you're going, if they're not going that same place as well. How? Right? If you're a Christian, you're going to spend your money on different things than people who are not Christians. If you are a Christian, you're going to spend your time differently, particularly on Sundays, than people who aren't. If you are a a, a Christian, you're going to give away your money to things that maybe other people wouldn't. If you have kids, you're going to raise your kids a certain way. Uh, let me put it this way. Your decision-making process almost always is affected by what you think is good, true, and beautiful. 
The way you analyze reality, you say, here's what's good, here's what's true, here's what's beautiful. And it affects your decision-making, but you're going to have different views on the good, the true, and beautiful. And to link yourself at the, at the deepest core of who you are to somebody that have di- those differences, it's going to be a disaster, not just for you, but for them. And I have concern for hopefully everybody. So I actually, actually will marry two people of, of, of the same faith. Even if you have no faith, I will marry you. But I will not marry you if you have different ones because of the, the consternation and the hurt and heartache that's potential there. That's what's happening here. And I know, by the way, that's costly. There's a large number of you in our church that are single, and that if you hold this true, you're nearing your prospects. That's costly. There's a lot of you that are married. And if you're in marriage, marriage is hard, and there's a costliness of that marriage as well. And this text is trying to tell you exactly that. It's trying to prepare you for that fire, that you will be rejected to some degree. And you're going to have to reject, not because you're unloving, but because you are. And that would be misunderstanding all around. And by the way, not just from, from them to you, but from you to them too. That's fire. Okay, number one. All right, number two. Back. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response or Q&R after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. Baptism. The, there's an image of baptism here. Now, for a lot of people in America, they, when they think of baptism, they think it's like a Christian thing with a bunch of water, maybe sprinkle, maybe dunk, maybe kids, maybe not. A little bit of kid, a little bit of not kid, depending on your tradition. That's how most people think of, of baptism. But that can't be what Jesus is saying here because he was baptized actually in Luke chapter 3. Instead, he, he, it can't be that. Also, baptism, in this, this particular one, is clearly causing him some sort of uh, cons- you know, distress. The word in verse 50 of, of constraint means to be attacked or besieged. In Greek literature, pre-Christian Greek literature, there, the word baptism showed up a lot. Baptizo. And it was almost always about a, uh, some sort of catastrophe or, or being overwhelmed in a moment. Mark 10, verse 38 gets at this when Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? That's not a fuzzy-wuzzy baptism. That's a hardship. That it's some sort of, of uh, ordeal that he's going to go through that's beyond his strength. That's what, how baptism is being used here. So, And I would argue there's two types of ordeals that that are out there. First type of ordeal is one that everybody goes through. It's the ordeal of cancer. It's the ordeal of hardship. It's the ordeal of broken relationships. It's the ordeal of anxiety and, and pain and suffering and, and heartache that every human on earth goes through. Where you're going to have to wake up today and say, how am I going to deal with this ordeal? Some of you are going to try to ignore it. Some of you are going to try to uh, deaden it and appease it. Some of you are going to try to face it. But everybody is having to ask that question. As a minister, the older I get, I'm, what I've realized, what's been fascinating for me when it comes to ordeals, is I've seen people now that have had the exact same ordeal, but they respond to it differently. It's possible to have the exact same uh, stimulus in your life, and yet one person thrives through, the other person crumbles. One person becomes more bitter, the other person becomes wiser. One person uh, will 
increase in hardness because of that ordeal, other, another person will become more tender. What, what doesn't happen is it leaves you the same. Nobody stays the same. It's usually one or the other. It's been really interesting why that actually happens. At the end of Lord of the Rings, uh, King Aragorn is trying to bind up the wounds of Mary who's been wounded. And this is what he says. He says, I came in time to have called Mary back. He's weary now, grieved, and he has taken a hurt. But these evils can be amended. So strong a spirit in him. His grief, now listen, here it is. His grief he will not forget, but it will not darken his heart. It will teach him wisdom. I think everybody in this room has ordeals. But you have to ask yourself, is this grief going to darken my heart, or is it going to make me wiser? I think you have a choice. I think we all have choices when it comes to ordeals, and we have to ask ourselves, is this going to crush my heart and crush my spirit, or is, or is the pressure going to be able to make me into a diamond? Is it going to make me able to shine? I'm not saying thrive. I'm not saying that nobody thrives in ordeals, but the mystery of them is that for ordeals, that some of us, it can actually make us better, not worse. I've, no, I've known people who have had not had a lot of ordeals in their life, and they end up being fairly shallow people. I've also known people who've had crazy ordeals, and they're some of the deepest people, endlessly deep, than, of, of anybody I've known. What will it be for you? How will you respond? How will you let those things shape you? Number one. Now, the second type of ordeal that's in here is not the one that comes to everybody. It's ones that come to people, particularly because of the baptisms before them. For Jesus, he's like, I'm, I'm here for a task. I'm here for a job. I'm here on a journey. And there's a particular thing he's going through. But I would argue all Christians, and by, what does it mean to be Christian, right? Christ, it means that you put your faith, it means that you're putting your trust in him. If you do that, there's a level of ordeals that come your way. For instance, if you're a Christian, you decide because of your faith and your integrity, it, you know, if the world is random and this is just all that there is, then ethics to some degree is, is formed not because of some moral rootedness and foundation. Instead, it's just something that you, you do because it makes the world work a better place. But then for you individually, it doesn't always do that. So maybe you don't lie. I mean, sorry, maybe you don't tell the truth. Maybe you do lie. But if you're a Christian and you go into your job and you say, you know what, I'm not going to take that bribe that other people are taking. If you say, I'm not going to treat my coworkers as competitors, there's a good chance if you do that, there's a persecution that will come your way. There, that there will be a hardship, that there will be an ordeal that comes your way. I've, I, you can lose your job that way. There's always the nice story where, and I've told stories before, where you know, business uh, men and women, they, they change their practice to be more ethical, and everybody loves it, and they get more revenue through it, and everybody's happy. But more often than not, it's the other way around that actually there's more hardship. There's more hurt. Jesus says, bless those who persecute you. Romans 12, Paul says, bless and do not curse. But if you do that, I think we can see now, if you're not actually working against your detractors and your enemies, and you're actually working for them, at times that you will lose because of that. In China, I know dozens of pastors who have been imprisoned because of what I'm doing right now. They got up and preached, and they've been in prison something for years for doing the very same thing that I'm doing. And you know what? They expect those ordeals. You know why? Because they read these kind of passages and know that. I've been convicted all week about, you know, I don't see that persecution coming my way. I've been convicted that there's, I'm going to be careful here. There's a type of person who looks for persecution, sees it everywhere, and they're always a victim. I'm not talking about that. 
if you're really following this out, there would be a type of persecution that comes anyway. And if it doesn't, then we have to ask ourselves, where might we be right now lacking godly conviction because we haven't taken this to heart? Right? If he doesn't fit our box, put it this way, if he doesn't fit our box and you put him at the core of who you are, you're not going to fit a box either for other people. You're going to be able to hold things together that other people can't hold. You're going to be able to be wildly generous and yet hold your line and be convicted and committed. Like you're going to be able to be both bold and humble because Jesus was bold and humble. You're going to be able to speak out at times, and you're going to be silent at times, and there'll be times that people, they see that, and they don't know why you're doing one or the other. Uh, if you're really doing this, and you're desiring justice and forgiveness, and you're holding these things together that other people can't hold together, you're not going to fit. And you know what? If you can't fit, you're not going to be able to be controlled, and if you can't be controlled, there's persecution. All right, last point. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Here's what we've done so far. Division, fire, baptisms, ordeals, heartache. This is what, a, what an uplifting message, Dr. Keller. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. But then the question you have to ask yourself is, then, you know, is it worth the cost? You're a New Yorker. You, you understand costliness. There are things in this town that are very costly. There are some things that are worth the cost. There are some things that are not worth the cost. And we have to ask ourselves, how do we assess this? This says in this text, there are, there are divisions in families. There are other texts that say you get family. We've talked about this a couple weeks ago. What's crazy, this is a mystery, that you can be a white Western male in New York, but as a Christian, I actually have more association with a, a blue-collar uh, you know, African woman in a different continent than I do with people of my own class and race and geography that I can be able to go and pray with them. I can go and learn something from them because we have the same tenets and foundations and background of who he is and who I am. That's powerful. But there's more here. There's even more. Look at, if you go to Acts chapter 5, verse 41, uh, there are these people in the early church, and after being flogged, it says this, after being flogged for preaching about Jesus, they left rejoicing because they counted it worthy to suffer. I don't know if we do that. I, don't, I know I don't do that. Acts 16, Paul and Silas, they're, they're imprisoned and they're singing songs and hymns. Acts 8, after persecution, they preach the word, they do deeds of service, and then there are these acts of wonder that happen. And they, what happens in Acts 8? It says there's joy in the city. One of our foundational statements that we say here, and I love that because joy in the city means not everybody has to believe, and they, and they won't. But do they see the benefit of our lives and how we love and how we serve and we move out? These people counted the costs, and they thought it was worth it. And the question I want to ask for you and me is, is it worth it for us? Right? They saw what Jesus did and what it cost him, and they said, sign us up for that. And do we do that? And I think the argument is they did because they saw how the benefits outweighed the cost. That the cost didn't feel heavy in light of the benefits. Well, what are those? We'll go back to our text. Look in verse 50. The word here for completed, I can't wait. I am under this constraint until it is completed. The word for completed here is a longingness for the hardship, the cup, the fire, the, this ordeal baptism that's coming. Which I find, you should pull back for a second here. What, I mean, assuming that he's not somebody who just likes pain, why would Jesus say, bring it on? I can't wait till all this hardship and hurt and, 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 and fire and all this stuff is going to come my way. 
what would allow him to wish for that hardship, for the division that he was going to suffer? What is, what's his division? He's going to be divided from his father. The baptism is in water. It's the baptism of nails and fire and crucifixion and cross. What benefit would Jesus be able to look at that cross and that death that was coming his way and say, bring it on? And he longed for the cost. A friend of mine pointed this out to me. One of my favorite movies growing up was this movie called Hook, uh, where Robin Williams plays this grown-up Peter Pan. And he has grown up, he's forgotten though Never Never Land, and he's become this cynical old man. Who's like, and I think at the time he's like in his 40s, and now in my 40s, I know what it's like. Because as a cynical old man, he can't have a happy thought. Because every thought that could be happy, he sees the negative undercurrent, right? Candy! A kid would say, candy, yes. You know what, it, you know what we say? Heartburn. <laughs> Empty calories. Rot your teeth. You know, a simple person can go out and say, look at the sun, I can't wait. People say skin cancer. (laughs) We have the amazing ability as adults now to take any wonder and destroy it. And so his kids are kidnapped in this movie by Captain Hook, and he has to go rescue them, but he can't fly. He can't fly because he doesn't have a happy thought. And yet he goes and tries to rescue his kids, and at at the, I think, the seminal moment, he, he... sees his son, who's now dressed, by the way, in Captain Hook's garb. He's fully now identifying with the pirates. He's fully now changed his association away from his father. And yet his dad comes to him and says, Jack, Jack, you won't believe this. I found my happy thought. It took me three days to find it, but you want to know what my happy thought is? And he gets close to his son and he says this, it was you. You were my happy thought. With a big smile on his face, the thought of his son, of who his son was, allowed him to overcome his cynicism, allowed him to overcome his hurt and heartache. The the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus staring death in his face. He gets close to the face of death. And it says there, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? It was you. It was you. Jesus could have said, why suffer all this? It's not worth it. Instead, he says, bring on the fire and the baptism and ordeal. As hard as it is, he's willing to lose interrelationship within the Godhead Trinity, which is unfathomable for us, to gain relationship with you. And if seeing you was enough to handle the ultimate pain and trials in life, then guess what? For you and I, seeing him and his love for us and how he made us his joy will allow us to handle the pain and the suffering and ordeals that that have come and are here, and will come again. That's what we see here. His costs make our costs manageable. The joy found in him, the fact that that joy found in him is me. Being his joy brings joy. That you being his joy, nothing can make him ever leave you now. And as such, that allows us never to want to leave him. Going back to that movie, Peter Pan's son, as soon as he hears that from his father. He throws off the old clothes. He re-identifies with his father. He throws himself into his father's arms. Because why? Seeing the joy from his father allowed him to... Th- it, he, it didn't mean there wasn't hardship and hurt and strife inside that relationship, but he could throw his arms back on his father. And he said to his father, take me home. Do you do that? Do you, can you throw yourself on the father through Jesus Christ? Say, take me home. Do you throw yourself into his arms because you see the joy that you are to him? 
I would argue that if he gave himself for you, it'll make us a lot easier to give ourselves not just to him, but to others. It'll allow us to stop navel-gazing, to move out and to, and to have curiosity out in the world. Some of you, if you're Peter Pan, the reason why you can't fly is that you've lost that happy thought. And you lost that happy thought because the, the concerns and the cares and the cynicism of the world, but if that happy thought is his thought of you that made it worth it to him to die on the cross and be raised again, then friends, if you put that at the core of your life, you're going to be able to fly again. Relationships fade, jobs fail, hardships are real, death in our families are all around us. But they will not have the last word, and it, it will make us curious. Curious to know more about the Lord and his love. Some of you here don't know what you believe, or you're not sure, or you, or you do know, and you're, and you're... This will allow us to re-engage and to at least ask. Ask the questions. We have a time after the service, Q&A, Q&R, to ask these questions. His compassion and love for you gives us, will give you supernatural ability to have compassion and love out in this world. I promise you. Not natural. Naturally, I'm overwhelmed. I can't handle it. There's too much other stuff. But to push yourself out there again and to re-engage and to love the city and to care about justice and mercy and, and the flourishing of others and not just ourselves. Friends, there's the, the world, I see more argument and more arrogance and more people being argumentative. This is going to make us patient because if we see Jesus patient with us when we were that way to him, we can now be patient to other people. We can now re-engage and love them and treat them kindly. I think it's the secret. I think it's the secret that we've all been missing. It's the secret that you might even know and remember in your head, but you haven't made it in your heart. Re-engage. Re-remember. Put your arms around him. Make him your joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for treating us with love even when we have run every direction, gone every place, looked for joys in every other place. Even when we didn't love you, that is a powerful testimony that we can turn out and love others. Father, if we haven't, if, we, if the church, not if, the church hasn't been loving out in the world. And I think that when we haven't, Father, we've lost our way. We, we didn't place you at the core of who we are. The core of who you are is dying for enemies and we place it at the core of our hearts. We were going to do the same thing. It's what transforms the world. It transformed it at one time. We pray it will happen again. I pray that we would be people who are going through ordeals, but that we would turn to you, Father, see that you've done it first, and see these hard passages, but to realize that we're, we're thankful of the honesty, that there is division, the honesty that there is fires, there are ordeals, that this isn't sugarcoat. Jesus, this is real life, Jesus, that where you hold things together that often we can't, and we submit ourselves to you, Father. We, it's scary, but we know you're good, and you're the king. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.